Last week, we finished a series called The Story of God. And literally, in four weeks, we plowed through the Bible. Uh, really fast, actually. And we went from beginning all the way to the end. And Jeremy last week talked about the consummation of the kingdom. And so we, we went uh, on a journey through what we believe to be the story uh, that uh, really defines world history and also a story that we're invited into uh, as, as, as through Christ and a story that we're encouraged to explain and tell to others. And so having gone all the way to the end last week, you're never going to believe what we're going to do today. We're pretty much going to go back to the beginning again, right? So we're going to go back, not all the way, but pretty close uh, to the book of Exodus. So uh, if you want to open up your Bibles there, by all means, do that. Uh, at first glance, uh, you look at this opening passage in this book known as Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and at first glance you go, okay, this is a, an introduction of sorts. It's, it's customary. It's what they did to kind of get the ball rolling. It, it could easily be a throwaway for us. It could easily be kind of a dear readers uh, salutation, right? Or is that at the end? I can't remember. What's the salutation, the beginning or the end? Come on, people. Beginning, all right. All right, so there's, I'm not the only one slightly confused about this. The beginning. Just doing it. Let's uh, kind of get that out of the way so that we can get into the, to the nitty-gritty, the details of the book. Well, as we see here tonight, this opening passage is anything but customary only. As a matter of fact, if we pause for a moment, if we slow down, begin to look at this passage in seven verses, we begin to see that there's rich truth to be mined here. And so I want to bring you there, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I think God has some pretty significant things, even in this short passage, to teach us as we enter into this a quite of a lengthy book. So let's go there. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The author, uh, Moses, uh, pens these words. He says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is God's Word. Amen? Amen. The Word, the book, Exodus. What does it mean? as we begin to open up this book and take a look at it. What does that word mean? Well, it simply means X out of. That's what X means, to be out of. And uh, Otis is the journey or the way. So 
you're on a journey being brought out of something, right? So you're, you're taken out of something and beginning a journey. Does that make sense? Where do we hear this often? You'll see, uh, you'll hear phrases like, uh, tons of people left after the pastor made big mistakes or committed nasty sins, if you will. It was a mass, what? Exodus. We hear these things, sadly enough, in the church often. Exodus, it's a journey out. One, those who were once in a place or in a particular situation are brought out of that situation and begin uh, to go out on a different way and a different journey. So, we know this. This is the book of Exodus. It's, it's a well-known story about the people of Israel that were powerfully brought out of Egypt and began a journey to a promised land. Right? But how in the world did these people get there? Right? You begin to read this story and you begin to ask the question, how did the people of Israel, who were powerfully redeemed out of this place, ever get there in the first place? What? Why are they there? We often hear the story about how they were taken out, but how did they actually get to be in Egypt in the first place? Well, again, we have to go back a little further to understand that. We have to, in this present context in Egypt, where the sons of Israel are, we have to look back a little bit further into the book of Genesis to understand and, and answer that question. So we see that these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And you have the list of those sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So you have a list of these sons. These were not sons of Egypt. They were the sons of Jacob, or the sons of Israel, as Jacob was renamed. So these people, in many ways, didn't belong there. They should not have been there. They were another people, really, of another place. So these sons of Israel, at least on the surface, look to be a people that are, 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 are not belonging in that place. They're, they're foreigners in every sense of the world. So why are they there? Why? How did they arrive to this place? Well, if you go back into Genesis, and feel free to start flipping, because really the last 13 or 14 chapters or so in Genesis, prior to Exodus chapter 1, tell the story, at least uh, related to Jacob and his sons. They tell this story about how his sons, including Joseph, got into Egypt. First of all, the reason these people got into Egypt was because of a famine. Okay, There was a famine all over the inhabited world. Okay, And so Egypt under the, the direction and the governance of Joseph, who we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, he has a dream, he, he foresees these things, God shows him things, and so he begins to prepare for this famine. And so Egypt had saved in storehouses food. They had resources. 
And so the rest of the world didn't do that. And so they found themselves in a place of being incredibly hungry. They were without. And so what did they do? If you go back to uh, Genesis chapter 41, we see at the end of that chapter that they had heard about the storehouses and the provision uh, and the the abundance of Egypt. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt because of the famine. Genesis 41-56 says this, So when the famine spread over all the land, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you looking at one another? (laughs) In other words, probably, why are you standing around and doing absolutely nothing? (laughs) Right? Do something. Behold, I've heard that there's grain to buy in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. See, they were living in a situation that was a matter of life and death. They had no food. And the only place to go in the midst of this worldwide famine was to Egypt. And so Jacob sent his sons there. So he asked the question, how did the people of God end up in Egypt? It was because of a famine. They needed food. It's as simple as that. But if you dig even farther back, just a little bit more, into Genesis 37, really uh, five chapters, 37 through 41, we see that it's not just a famine, but there's also a little bit of family baggage going on here. The reason they find themselves in Egypt, or at the very least, the reason Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, finds himself in Egypt, in power, goes back a little bit farther into a little bit of family baggage. Bottom line, text says that Joseph was already in Egypt. The reason he was in Egypt was because long ago, his bros completely sold him out. That's right. His friends, sick, or his brothers, sick of hearing all about this, this coat and then bowing or seeing this coat and hearing about how he's having these dreams about things bowing down to one in the middle and really what that signified was all you cats are going to be bowing down to me, right? The brothers got sick of hearing about those dreams. And so they got jealous, they got angry. They were sick of the fact that Jacob really loved Joseph and they were envious of him. And so crazy idea, or their, their sin, their, their anger against Joseph grew to the point where they devised a plan to literally get rid of him. And so they sold him to some slave traders who then came and took him to Egypt. And again, there are so many more stories that go along with how Joseph interacted with Egypt and how he was in prison and how he began to interpret dreams and at the end of the day rose to power and oversaw all the distribution of the food. And you begin to see that, wow, there's a little bit of a historical background regarding a a famine you see a little bit of a historical background about a little bit of family baggage i mean you hear these names you got to understand that these are people these are lives this is a family these are 70 people who belong to a household this is real and they find themselves in egypt and while the brothers come back and finally uh bow in fulfillment of these dreams to Joseph, right? 
and then seek forgiveness. Joseph's providing for his family. And in this whole process, they're able to settle there in Egypt and live off the abundance of the nation. And so the sons of Israel are indeed provided for in this way. And the conclusion of Joseph is one that we know. It's at the end of chapter 50. He says, he says this, Joseph says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Taking a look at his life through in all the difficulty that he went through, looking back on the story of how he was sold by his brothers and all the difficulty and the injustices that he's experienced and the, the unthinkable rise to power from prison, he concludes this. He says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant what you did for evil against me. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. So what we're seeing here in this moment, these opening verses, is not really the beginning of something, really. It's a continuation of something that we've already seen. Right? God is active and faithful in the lives of His covenant people. We can't miss that. We cannot miss the fact that He is perfectly fathering a nation and providing for every single need that they have. That really what we see here is not the accidental or the coincidental showing up of a group of people to have some grain. But literally, the outworking, the unfolding of the plan and promises of God to take care of this nation. That God, when He makes a promise to His people, guess what? He keeps it. He keeps it. So that what we see here is so much more than we would necessarily see on the surface. And we see here, and we need to listen to Joseph, what he's really saying. It's not about me. It's about what God is doing in me and through me. Right? God is up to something. I, am I God? But my eyes of faith see what God is doing to bring you here, to provide for you. This is truly a continuation of of this story. And really, Exodus, although we see, right, the first five books of the Bible, right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is five books, right? But really, they're one book. It's one book called the Pentateuch. Five works. Really, one. One author, one story in five different books or sections, if you will. Right? So, this is not the beginning even though we're in the beginning of Exodus. It's the continuation of what God is doing. And really what we're seeing is the continuation of God's sovereign plan, God's covenant promises to His covenant people. He's made promises. He's going to keep them. And we see that all the more in verse 7, right? So verse 6 says that Joseph dies, all his brothers and all that generation. So all those folks had died. But... Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land 
was filled with them. Have you heard that language before? Fruitful. Multiplied. Filled. Help me out. Genesis, right? We see that these folks here, these people, this family, in the midst of Egypt, due to the sovereign work of God in their life, is fulfilling their creative purposes in the world. That's creation language. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then what does he say? Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. And so God is working in such a way to allow His people, to, to have His people live into His creative purposes in the world. God's doing something. And where else have we seen or heard of promises of blessing right of 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 literal filling of more than the stars in the skies where have we heard language like that i will bless you i will make your name great i will bless you and you will be a blessing we hear about this for sure with God's covenant in Genesis 12 and 15 with Abraham. Right? Abraham. Don't forget about that. Wait, Jacob, his dad was Isaac. His dad was who? Abraham. God made a covenant. He made a promise to Abraham. His son Isaac and Jacob, there's covenant renewal there. Each generation. What we're seeing is the end of an era known as the patriarchs, but a continuation of of the covenant promises that God has made to Abraham. So when we read the words, but these people were fruitful and increased greatly, the the writer here is not just trying to tell us that the population went up. That's not his purpose. He's not just there to tell us, well, those guys died, but the the nation really did a great job. They were were selling and they were buying and their, their, their real estate holdings were on the increase. Man, their calves, their livestock, man, they were doing pretty well. He's trying to tell us something so much more. It's what God is doing. He made a promise out of grace with great purposes in mind. And He's making those things. He's fulfilling those purposes. He's keeping those promises in the world. So when we look at this, we see, ask the question, why are these people here? How did they get here? On the surface, it's famine. It's a little family baggage. But if we dig a little bit more, the answer to the question is simply the sovereignty of God placing His people where He wants them to be so that He can can fulfill His promises. Do we believe in that? Do we believe that God is that loving and that good and that uh, much of an orchestrator of human history that He is going to sovereignly place His people where He wants them for His purposes in the world? Do we believe that? That's what verse 7 is telling us. It's not a throwaway. It's a reminder of the promises of God and the fulfillment of it, at least the partial temporal fulfillment of those promises right there in the midst of human history about 1400 and so B.C. God's fulfilling His purposes. He's keeping every one of His promises. 
Can we put the pause button on for just a moment? Speaking to each and every one of you personally. Okay? Let's get personal for a moment. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, right here, right now, the sovereignty of God is governing it. Let that set in. In no way, shape, or form am I negating human responsibility. But understand this. God, in His sovereignty, is orchestrating human history in such a way to be faithful to His Word in your life. He's faithful to His Word, and it applies to you personally. It does. God's sovereign. Be sovereign over everything. Surely he's sovereign over the minuscule details and situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in right here, right now. And also be rest assured of this that if you scratch your head in confusion about what in the world is what's going on, what's happening, is there any hope? Is things going to get any better? Understand this. That God will keep every single one of His promises that He's made to His people. And if you're a part of His people, every one of those promises you can claim to be the beneficiary of. But let me get corporate for a moment as well. Because really that's what's going on here. It's a corporate reality. And I think that we need to think about it as well, I'll never forget having lunch with a friend at Original Italian Pizza one day. Of course, I'm going to go there because that's, that's one of my favorite places to go. And a good friend of mine started preaching. You know this good friend. I won't single him out. But he started preaching at me. And I was loving what I was hearing. He said to me, Mike, when are people going to understand and embrace and submit to the fact that God is sovereignly placing His people in the lives of other people. When are people going to submit to that reality? And I couldn't help but think about it in this moment. Especially it applies, as it applies to us as Renovation Church. Especially as it applies to our missional communities. We have them where they are. You say, well, so-and-so got tired, so they're not going to host anymore. So we're going to move to this neighborhood. That's the reason. Well, maybe God's doing something. Maybe God is placing you in another home, in another neighborhood. Let me, maybe I'm nuts. For His creative and covenantal purposes. Maybe we're, well, things didn't work out at this place, and now we're meeting over at that place, and we're considering and praying about that place over there. Maybe it's, well, it was, it was a little bit more money here, and it was a little bit difficult there. Maybe it has nothing to do with that, although we feel those things on the surface. Maybe the situations in which we're dealing with, the, the, the circumstances that surround all of this, is really us watching God do what He does best, sovereignly place His people. And as a warning, if you will, if, if we're thinking about any building, it doesn't matter what we're going to talk about later. Any building, anywhere, as a place that, that, that is equal to our identity, we're missing it. It's not about a place. It's about placement. 
if you will. Let me do a play on words. It's about the placement of God of his people in a community. That's what it's all about. God's sovereign. He's orchestrating human events in history. He's governing, not negating human responsibility in any way, shape, or form. But man, his creative purposes, his covenantal promises will be kept. And we need to rest in that from a personal point of view and also a corporate point of view. Our God is faithful to keep His covenantal promises to His covenant people. Can we just rest in that right now? He's faithful to keep His covenant promises to His covenant people. And that's what this series in Exodus is really all about. There's a bunch of themes that we're going to interact with along the way. We're going to pick up some stones, if you will, to put uh, kind of in our, in our pouch along the way to remember in this journey through Exodus. Uh, looking at Doug Stewart's uh, commentary, he talks about the fact that time and time again we're, we're, we're brought face to face with this reality that God saves His people from bondage. Right? Exodus. We're brought out of a place into another place. We're saved from sin is the great uh, redemptive theme, albeit illustrated in a na- nation being set free from slavery. We're going to see the real knowledge of God. God's revealing Himself personally. His name, right? Yahweh. We're going to see that over time and time again. You'll see, they will know that I am Yahweh. Right? We're going to see covenant promises given, reinforced, fulfilled. It's all about the fulfillment of promise. So if you're doubting the Word of God, you're struggling with skepticism, Right? You're not sure if you should believe. You're going to hear promises and see promises fulfilled in this series. How about the presence of God? Right? We're going to see much about that. We're going to see as the tabernacle in the, in the tent of meeting and all that stuff, the Ark of the Covenant, all the details surrounding all of those things really show us that there are physical symbols that, uh, that help us see and understand and reveal... What? The invisible God. We're going to see, and here's where it gets a little bit dicey, and we get a little bit uncomfortable, especially when we think about salvation. We're going to see the need for law. Right? That God reveals Himself and and, and gives the nation of Israel the law. The need to follow God. Obedience. Right? If you think about it, uh, you really look at the book and you see two sections. Right? Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 20 are about how God is miraculously and powerfully setting his people free from the enslavement of Egypt. Right? But then you see verse, chapters 20 through 40, and what do you see taking place? A new kind of servanthood. Salvation from sin, if you will, but salvation for obedience. Say, wait a minute. How about we just stick with uh, chapters 1 through 20? That's the one to celebrate. But that really there's a transition from uh, it's servanthood and, and, and slavery to Egypt, but now a, a, a true following and obedience and serving of the real God. And the only real difference we see, right, is the fact that we have an oppressive, evil, sinful ruler. And now we have the glorious, wonderful, merciful, loving, 
ruler that governs his people. So that's what we're going to see as we walk through this book. You know, the, the series title is Exodus, Redeemed for Worship. That's why God set you free. So that you might worship him in this. Our God is faithful to keep his covenant promises to his covenant people. That's what this right here is all about. Exodus 1, the rest of the book, Exodus. It's about God's covenant faithfulness to keep all of his promises to his people. Now, again, I'm, I'm not really a, a big English person. I'm not a grammar person at all. I'm totally, you know, you know, Liverpool kind of Syracuse guy. A lot of slang, a lot of this, a lot of that. Okay, so I'm going to try to give us all a little bit of a, some sort of, I don't even know if it's English, to be honest. That's how bad I am. I don't even know what kind of lesson this is. But does anybody know the difference between this and that? Like the, when you say, yeah, I, I want to eat, or, or maybe like kind of the example is this, right? When, when my wife and I order food and we sit down and she looks at this and then looks at that, meaning my plate, and says, I don't want this anymore. I want that. We call that food envy in our house, right? Every time she orders this, she recognizes as she looks at my plate that she'd rather have that. So what's the difference between this and that? It, yeah, possession to some degree. Perspective, Perspective okay. It's really simple. It's actually space. That's it. It's spatial. So we look at this, these first seven verses, and we see that God is in this temporal moment fulfilling all of His promises. But even in the book of Exodus, I don't want to look at this without looking at that, if you will. We're going to look at this we're not going to ignore this. We're not going to move from this and jump to that. But friends, we can't look at this and say God is faithful to His covenant promises for His covenant people and not consider the, work, the finished work of Jesus Christ and say, yes, we know that God is fully and forever faithful to keep every one of His covenant promises because that is fulfilled in Christ. We're going to look at this, but we're not going to miss that. Okay? When it comes to God's covenant faithfulness. And I couldn't help but think about Ephesians 1. As we're looking at redemption, how can we not think of Jesus in Ephesians 1 that says this, and then we have redemption through His blood. Whose blood? Christ's blood. In Him we have redemption. We've been set free through the blood of Jesus. The forgiveness of our sins. We're set free from the, from the tyranny of sin according to the riches of His grace. So I don't want to point us here. I do. I want to talk about this. But we can't miss that when we talk about this. God is faithful to keep every one of His covenant promises. This tells me that. But nothing tells me it more than that. It is the ultimate fulfillment of this. Are you tracking with me? We don't need to skip Exodus and just go to that. We can go to this and have a fuller, more robust understanding of that. That's what this is all about, this series. 
This points to that. That defines this in fuller detail. And you know what? If you go back to Ephesians 1, what does that do when it saves us? Does it just set us free from sin and let us do whatever we want until the, until the trumpet blows? What does that call us to? Worship. And if you look at that chapter, Ephesians 1, right? All to the praise of His glorious grace. <laughs> right? Why is God doing anything through Christ? Why is God doing anything in this moment in the history of God's people? Why is God doing anything to set us free and save us from our sin? Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. Because He wants worship. <laughs> That's what redemption is. True biblical Christian redemption is one that sets us free, amen, but it sets us free for acceptable worship unto God. I pray the Spirit prompts us to do just that. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank You for this passage. It is a wonderful one as we dig deep into it. If there's anyone here tonight that is stuck in sin, whether completely, never been set free from Jesus, I pray today they turn to Jesus. His death on the cross, His blood spilled for them, and that they trust and rely upon Jesus, and they say, yes, salvation, set me free, redeem me from sin. But maybe there's somebody here tonight that just is stuck. They feel like they're still in Egypt. And there's a besetting sin. I pray you set them free. That that idol would be crushed. And that you would sovereignly, sovereignly crush the enemy of sin as they submit in repentance and obedience. All empowered by the Spirit. And if there's anyone here tonight that's not interested in any way, shape, or form in your redemption, in your salvation, or in any kind of worship of you, we pray you change their hearts, soften them, inspire them, replace their affection, replace our affections so that we might faithfully honor, obey, and worship you as you are. In Christ's name, amen.